Welcome to Thrive Beyond Pornography, the podcast where real couples like us candidly navigate the journey to a healthier, more connected life. Join us as we share personal experiences, expert insights, and practical tips to help you thrive in your relationships and break free. Together, let's repair and build a rock-solid connection, becoming a couple that can overcome any challenge. I'm Zach. And I'm Darcy. Did you know that pornography doesn't have to destroy you or your marriage? We're the parents of eight active members of the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, and we love to help people just like you. We're here to share hope and healing as we take you through our journey and the journeys of our amazing clients to greater joy and love. Come grow with us to a happier, more meaningful life. Welcome Welcome to to the the Self Mastery Podcast. Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome to another Mastery Monday here on the Self Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Spafford, and today I have two guests. Uh, Darcy. Hey. Hi. How you doing? I'm great. And I also have a phenomenal uh, sex therapist named Jennifer Finlayson-Fife. If you don't know who she is, you really should. She's amazing. She has some really great content, including a podcast that has a, um, the, a subscription podcast called, what's it called again? Room, Room for, for Two. two. I never yeah. look at it. I just listen to it. So I, yeah. I love it. And if you haven't gone and checked out her podcast, it's amazing. But today we've asked her to come and join us so that we can ask her a few questions about things that are maybe a little bit outside of what we would normally talk about, but that I think are really pertinent to you guys as as listeners who have either struggled with pornography or as the spouses or loved ones of people who are struggling with pornography. So hi, Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Let's just pop into the questions if that's okay. Sure. So a lot of uh, my clients really spend time beating themselves up because they just look at a woman, right? They see someone and they, they're like, I'm, I'm a terrible person because they find that person attractive. I don't find that they do this so much when they don't find that person attractive, but when they do find the person attractive, that's how they operate. And I think this comes yes. a little bit out of um, our culture as members of the church, but I also think it comes from uh, a little bit of scripture, right? So we have Matthew 5, 28, and it says, you know, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her in his heart already. So how do you reconcile what I think we all have as a deep love for the gospel and the scriptures and what we might call the plain meaning? I mean, this is kind of a Mm -hmm. plain statement, right? With Mm -hmm. the reality that we're all sexual beings and we often see and acknowledge the beauty in other people. And sometimes that creates sexual urges that may run counter to, Mm -hmm. I think we see as a mandate to never see another person sexually, especially if that person's not our, our, our partner. Okay. Well, yeah, I think the, the idea of a mandate to never see another person sexually is not achievable. So I don't, I don't think that can be the right meaning. Right. Meaning I think that so much of life is that you are being pulled in directions. You you want to be healthy, but you see that chocolate croissant, you know, <laughs> and you're gonna lust after that croissant for a moment at least. You're you're gonna be drawn towards it. Um, the moral life is not about never ever having that feeling or that urge or that impulse. It's about not letting those run your life that you can use your moral anchor to run your life, right? So, I mean, I'll come back to the scripture, but I I guess I just want to start with the idea that, first of all, as human beings, we are sexual beings. We are sensual beings. That is that we like the—we don't just like it. We are 
we are created to be able to feel and taste and smell and and want those pleasures. They are part of joy, right? A chocolate croissant is a part of joy. It really is. Uh, <laughs> we're less ambivalent about that. Religious people are more ambivalent about sexual joy than we are about, you know, the joys of, of eating. But I think that any kind of sensual pleasure can interfere with your happiness and joy. If you're only going after pleasure, you'll run your life into the ground. But if you also deny pleasure, won't let yourself acknowledge even its presence or its possibility, I think also runs your life into the ground. So the way I take that meaning of that scripture is, is not, is I don't know what the actual word was when it was first translated, the word of lust, but, um, but the way a lot of us kind of conflate the meaning of lust that embodied desire, which is its technical meaning, I think, but we have multiple means, versus self-serving sexual desire. So if we're going with self-serving sexual desire, it is always wrong to lust in the sense that you are exploiting or using another person for your personal sensational pleasure. You're diminishing them into an object for your mm, sensual pleasure. I think that's always wrong, whether it's your spouse, a stranger, anyone, because you're, it's exploitative. You're using another human being. You're reducing them to something other than another child of God, another person with a life and history for just your pleasure. No matter, even if you do that, in marriage, and you don't even do it sexually, let's say you just reduce your husband to your provider of children and economic resources, but you don't value them as another human being mm -hmm. separate from you and an individual, it's sinful, in my opinion. It's very human to do it, but it is sinful. So I don't think, at least in our Latter-day Saint interpretation, the body is not the problem. Sexuality is not the problem but who we are relative to our sensual selves, who we are, what we create through our sexuality. And human beings are bombarded with impulses. You can't get through life without having them. You're going to have them. Even antisocial impulses like, you know, I don't know, just things that destructive things or thoughts that might come into your mind. The happiest, most moral people don't have an absence of any negative impulse but are able to not just get hooked into those and let those run the show. They can breathe through them, think through them, and choose deliberately. I think that really resonates. I know that in our marriage, as I grew up, I stopped using Darcy as an object of my own personal sexual gratification, and I started mm -hmm. to really change the way that I approach sex with her. Yeah. And that, that was complicated for a little while. And yeah. it was... It was I think scary for her because she lost control, lost yes. control of me. And also yes. it, it became a place where now we we have a different way of approaching it to where it's let's let's come together, let's do something that we both enjoy, not hey, I, I need I have needs and I want those met, which I, I yes. find that to be a, a poor way of thinking about it. Or Absolutely. Me, on my side it was like, well, if you don't, if you say no, your spouse is gonna turn to porn, right? Right. I literally was given that advice, you know, right. on my wedding day. 
That's yeah, right. Awful and terrible. And so many people get that horrible advice. But you know, yes, you're speaking to a way of relating to each other as objects to control, to manage your own sense of safety or comfort or validation, which is a word I use a lot. And neither one is really about fully respecting the other person and their autonomy. So this whole idea of I have needs, well, as soon as it's a common thing men learn, and women learn it about men too. Mm-hmm. And as soon as a man says that, he's basically saying, this is not about intimacy. This is not about choice or passion. You know, I have needs, and where's the passion? You know, <laughs> So they're putting it in a frame of utility and servicing yeah. um, and obliterating any chance of it being about choice and passion. But it can certainly be an easy way. When we're young in our moral development, we do relate to each other like objects to validate ourselves. And I think the measure of our ability to grow in spiritual and relational wisdom is growing into the ability to see the other person as another person, not as someone who owes you validation or that's going to provide you with safety, but another human being who's also vulnerable, flawed. Um, and so, and just to speak to your side of it, Darcy, what you're saying is like, it's a, well, that when Zach was not approaching me for his needs, it's scarier. Mm-hmm. Because then it's not about, you know, doing capitulating, then I have control. Yeah. Even if it's from a one down position, I can then kind of make sure he's not going anywhere else because I've got the source. Mm-hmm. And to break that model, there's relief in it, but then there's fear in it too. Because if I can't control him through the provision of a need, would he just choose me anyway? If that's on him. And I don't, I can't control that. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's hard for most people to let go of control. Absolutely, so that they can create intimacy. That's at least, right. At least I I found that hard. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm working with people all the time is the way we cling to the fantasy of control. I think that's the better way to say it. Yeah, the fantasy of control because we yeah. don't ultimately control each other, and a lot of times we're handling the anxiety that we all feel in how we only we have so little control when things matter so much, but we're often looking, we prefer the control over the really letting the people we love have choices about who they're going to be. So let's, let's take anxiety for a second. And I think that people, I personally, I use pornography to manage my own anxiety. I used my wife to manage my own anxiety. Uh, And I, I found that there are some really clear patterns in how our brain like begins to move down that path to override our moral desire to avoid pornography or to avoid things that don't really fit into our moral compass. Can you maybe speak to how and why an individual would look at pornography rather than follow their moral compass or moral ideal? Like, why is it that we just- I do do think it's a lot. I mean, anytime we're in a behavior pattern, whether it's pornography, looking at your phone when you're supposed to be working on your book, (laughs) um, things like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, is about when we come up against reality that will make us feel anxious, whether that's an intimate relationship with your spouse, whether that's something you need to be doing that is amorphous or uncertain. Um, and life is full of those things our brains will push us to go to something that we feel more certain of, something that gives us more sense of control. You know, I had a son who was somewhat compulsive about video game use in high school, and part of it was 
his anxiety about was he good enough, was he as smart as he thought he should be or needed to be. And so he'd kind of handle that by moving into a world in which he felt way more control. He was very good at video games. He knew how to, but then he'd reemerge and then feel worse. Then want to sort of escape those feelings of anxiety and that I'm failing at who I want to be by going back to a world that he felt more control in. And we don't like pornography, you know, as a society, we, we get reactive to it. And so we can really vilify people who are doing it in the sexual realm, but it's very much a similar mechanism, you know, that you go to the thing, oh, I'll just check and see, you know, did I get an email, whatever on my phone? Because that's a world that's more predictable than how do I articulate this amorphous idea that I don't yet fully understand? That's a that's more anxiety evoking. That's more uncertain. You never know when you've quite gotten to the right idea, and so we we love predictability, and so forgiving ourselves for that. You know, being able to one of the things that we do is we will just be on. We'll just go with the impulse. You already got the chocolate croissant in your mouth before you had a chance to think about, is this really what I want? And a lot of times just breathing through that uncertainty, just observing the feeling and the sensation in your body and just allowing that impulse to observe it and get on the other side of it, you are in more of a position to actually choose than letting your limbic mind run the show, right? By limbic, I mean your more primitive mind that likes safety, that's in charge of your safety. Well, and one thing that came to my mind when you were talking about that one bite of the chocolate croissant is that yes. after that one bite, you could still put it back on the plate. That's right. Like, you don't have right. to be like, well, I ruined it. I had this right. one bite, so I Absolutely. might as well eat 12 of them. Exactly. But I think that yeah. that goes with pornography too. It's like, oh, Absolutely. I That's well, right. Wait, A lot of us, be. precisely, we have these very perfectionistic and hostile relationship to ourselves, And so if we fail, well, then it, we can go into this, well, I'm just a failure. There's no point in trying. And we can move into this kind of all or nothing thinking that really interferes with our ability to self-regulate and get back to a place of more capacity to choose. Mm -hmm. You know, my hope in my work with people is helping them to be self-aware enough that they increase their agency. Yes. rather than being run around by their impulses, their habits. And a lot of times our brains are so good at keeping and reinforcing the system we already operate within that we don't have as much freedom as we think. Well, and I think that's a really an excellent point. One of the things we often talk about is how, you know, as members of the church, we think I can drink a beer, but I choose not to. But when it comes to things like pornography and sexual struggles, it's no, I can't, I shouldn't. That's mm -hmm, yeah. my capacity to choose. That's right. And so I'm not allowed to choose that, even though I am choosing it, which is right. I think what exactly. You described. You're in this uh, very difficult struggle against being good and being perfect at being good and just being horrible to yourself. That's right. And I just think if we even, oh, that's better. Uh, even if we just like are more compassionate around, you know, so first of all, one, let me start with two different things. One is that a lot of times when I work with people who are compulsive about porn, I will really bring to the fore the fact that they are choosing and that they are choosers. 
yes. and that they can choose to do it, obviously, because they have been choosing to do it. And I they same things. I say those same <laughs> words to people every day. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. Because, right, unless it's really like, come on, you you absolutely don't have to have sex with your husband. Look at you. You haven't done it for two years. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So, so we're good at telling ourselves these ideas about what we have to, mm-hmm. and then we're rebelling against it. Yes. You know, as opposed to, you know, I really am a chooser of my life. I'm the one creating the legacy of my choices. And are these choices I can feel good about or not? But what do I want? A lot of times we we struggle in, we actually prefer compliance and defiance as a meaning frame that we're choosing within because it's a way of pushing off the responsibility of our choices. But until we get them onto our own shoulders, it's very hard to really deliberately choose your life and choose the consequences you want to live within. There was a second idea. Now I forgot it. Let's see. This is what I love about you is that you think out loud in all of your. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you like it. <laughs> I feel like at least I can keep up because I think out loud too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. So well, I think is- I may have lost that other idea. Maybe it'll come back, but go ahead. I'm sure it will. So one of the things that when you're talking, Zach used to always say like, you know, you have a choice. Pornography doesn't like show up, yes. tie you to a chair and make you watch it. Like you are that's choosing. Right. And I always that's say, right. like, he's always like, it doesn't just show up and say, watch yeah. me. But I'm like, yeah, exactly. it does for the wives. <laughs> right. Sometimes it does for the wives. <laughs> right. Because they find like, it on their husband's phones. And they're like, oh. Oh, oh got it. And then they have to watch. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm like, it, yeah. it, it just popped up in, right in front of me a few yeah. times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But speaking of wives, um, I think a lot of our spouses, um, you know, for men who use pornography, and I think even women, but mostly I think this this uh, this meaning frame is given to wives. A lot mm-hmm. of our spouses are given this betrayal trauma model of organizing their thoughts around what's happening mm-hmm. in their relationship. And just wanted you to maybe speak to um, how you can reconcile the idea that when I'm lying to my wife and I'm mm-hmm. not telling her the truth, she mm-hmm. can you know, find me uh, at least to some extent being truthful and attractive and she feels quote unquote safe. But then when, you know, I disclose and I tell her, Hey, you know, this is what's actually going on for me. And they, you know, there's that blow up moment that I think we often see and Mm -hmm. they now no longer feel safe to the point where they, you know, we're not going to have sex for eight years. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you Mm -hmm. reconcile that idea that, that if I know what's happening, I don't feel safe. And if I don't know what's happening, I do feel safe. And doesn't that seem a bit Mm -hmm. paradoxical? Yeah, well, and I would say in the moment of disclosure, your wife is actually safer than she was before, even though she's feeling less safe, but she's more awake to reality. And that always makes you safer. You know, being in Disneyland, you know, may feel good, but if you have no ability to handle the reality, as soon as all the rides get put away, you're, you're toast. Okay, that is to say it may feel good when you think this is really what's real, but you are unprepared for a real world that's not making you safe. And so I don't want to interrupt you, Darcy. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, like, I've talked to some women where that are like, I don't really know what he, he's done, but I don't really want to know, right? Yes, like, I right. would rather be oblivious and get to right. live my lifestyle that I'm accustomed to and just kind of turn a blind yes. eye, shove it under the rug, pretend it's not there. Right. And they do this Absolutely. for like 30 years. Absolutely. 
Absolutely, because a lot of people, again, don't want intimacy. Mm-hmm. They want security. They want the security that's afforded through an image of a marriage mm-hmm. or an image of kind of a certain kind of social standing. But they don't want to necessarily know and care for the person that they're married to. So a lot of us do prefer ignorance. Um, Do you think that's so? Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, I I was just going to say. Do you think that's because we don't want to be known? Um, Yes, and we don't want to know either. One thing, but not wanting to be known is is a different thing. Both. I think it is. I mean, if, as long as I stay ignorant to you, then I don't have to, you know, show me. But it's also an investment in another person to know them. And it's a challenge to your own sense of self and the limits of your control. And so a lot of us don't want to know. Like when my son was struggling in high school and was struggling with anxiety and depressive feelings and feeling like he couldn't kind of get himself out of this loop, he would... I would ask him how he was doing. I would try to talk to him about it. But honestly, I didn't really want to hear what he was saying. I wanted to fix it. Mm-hmm. So I would come in with, you should do this. You should do that. Uh, because I didn't want to feel my own powerlessness, I wanted to solve it. Yeah. And so, you know, I remember him saying to me, Mom, you're not a very good listener, you know, and I'm a professional listener. <laughs> that, that, and I can listen to somebody else's teenager. <laughs> exactly. So like, you know how much I get paid to listen to people? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and if you just take my advice, this would all be solved. Uh, but uh, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it's really pushing you up against your own limits of your control, maybe your own feelings of failure. Like, how am I related to my husband's pornography problem? How how much is this about me? I would rather just not know about it or shame it than get in there and see what there is to be seen. That really pushes us against our own sense of self. So I think, you know, to speak to the betrayal trauma, I don't think there's any question. I just want to make sure nobody misunderstands this from me that if you believe your spouse has been trustworthy, honest, and you believe you know who that person is, and then you find out information that blows that picture up, it is traumatic. I mean, it's so disorganizing and disorienting to your life, to who your spouse is, to who you are, to what's up and down. And it's deeply, deeply disorganizing. What I think can be problematic in people's attempts to help someone in that situation is there's a reinforcement often of the very model that is the problem. They prescribe the problem as the solution. And the the solution, and, and I don't pretend to understand every betrayal trauma program, and some may be much better than others, just as that may be true for porn- pornography addiction models. It, it, it's not that they're all unhelpful, so I don't want to be simple-minded about it. But the, in my view, the thing that will most help somebody who feels betrayed is more information so she or he can make wise decisions for themselves. Their goal is not to trust their spouse. That's what most people want is get me back to the world where he was who I wanted him to be. Mm-hmm. 
And if you're going to a group to complain about your spouse not being who you wanted them to be with other people complaining about their spouses, and I know this is probably not fair to most programs, but, but if that's the muscle that's getting reinforced by anything, whether it's a program or a group of friends you talk to, it's going to make you weaker. It's going to keep you stuck. And again, some people prefer the intimacy of other people who understand the ways they've suffered over using their suffering to grow into a person who's more capable of intimacy and love. So you just don't want your treatment to reinforce where you already are and keep the marriage in a place of, you know, if you're waiting for your husband to be trustworthy, you may wait a very, very long time, especially if you're critiquing and, tr and think the locus of control is in him as opposed to being solid enough to know your spouse, who he really is, to know yourself, to know how the two of you have created a marriage, to know what role, if any, you have in the challenges that are a part of your marriage. Because that's what will make you safer, is being able to be an agent of change, an agent of greater strength within yourself and within your marriage, if your spouse does their own work, but you can't control that. But looking for others to make you safe will always keep you very, very unsafe. That's, that, that's a horrible place to be. I, I yeah. think, especially, um, you know, I think for me, when it was me trying to feel safe, right? Me trying to feel like, oh, I know I, I'm not allowed to look at porn, but if I just have sex with Darcy, then that'll solve the problem for, you know, the next 24 hours, let's call it. Yes. And knowing that that's really not true. And it was so disorienting to be like, no, this is what I was told the, the solution is. And it wasn't the solution because there were times right. we would have sex and then it would be like, oh, well, I still feel horrible. I need to look at porn. Right. 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 Exactly. That's a huge uh, space where you go, where you, so I think it, it, it's very invalidating, right? To, to feel like I don't know how to solve for this. Absolutely. If it's sitting in somebody else. And I think we do this a lot in our religious framing of sexuality, even that your spouse is the steward of your sexuality. And even though that sounds very nice, uh, it's not nice <laughs> because it sets people up to sort of be looking to the other person to legitimize their sexuality, to gratify their sexuality, to manage it. And as soon as, you know, especially a wife who thinks she's in charge of managing her husband's sexuality, I mean, she may do it so she has a sense of control, but she's never going to want that person. I mean, and she's never going to even really truly trust her husband if she thinks he can't handle his sexuality on his own terms. Which... Which she, you definitely, I mean, we definitely had that place in our lives where it was like, yeah, you don't know what to do and I have to be in charge. And so it was like control all of these various, you know, devices yep. and means and ways of managing my sexuality. Right. Even his eyeballs. Right. Yes, and then, exactly. Right, control exactly. his eyeballs. Exactly. <laughs> Everywhere exactly. we went. <laughs> right. And impossible. I see women I do this. I couldn't even do it. <laughs> I couldn't even do it. Well, yeah. And I, oh, it's, it's just a terrible job to have Yeah. as a wife. And how can you feel excited about that guy that you feel like he's he won't control his own eyeballs, I have to do it for him? I mean, there's no chance of actually feeling true respect if you think this person can't or won't handle themselves. Yeah, and then there was, uh, I think there was, there was a moment um, much later, 
uh, through this struggle that I, you know, I would go to Darcy and I would say, Hey, I'd like, we say, I'd like to make out tonight. Right. That's what I, that's what I say to her. And, and when she would say, I don't really feel like it, I had to get, I had to step back and go, okay, this is for me to manage. It's not for her mm-hmm. to manage. It's for me yep. to understand how exactly. I feel and not be pouty and not be clingy and not like, and now I have to learn that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah. Right. Like now the, the roles have slightly reversed, right? Like now mm. for me, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm all in man. Like, mm. Great. Feeling, I feel totally safe in like being intimate yeah. with him where like before it was more like, this is my duty. This is for him. Yes. yes I receive yes. pleasure, but it's not really benefiting me necessarily. It's all for him. Yes. Where now exactly. this is so now amazing. you want it for you. You you yes. like him. You want to be close to him. And and sometimes he's like, oh, I'm not sure I'm in the mood. Yeah, and I'm kind of to... tired. It was really good last night. I'm good for a few days. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're like, what? I'm like, You're supposed to be so a man who wants it all night. the time. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> exactly. So one of the recent social posts that you put up said one of the hardest things in life is to honestly face who you are without regressing into self-judgment and self-hatred. That yeah. alone takes a tremendous amount of courage, uh, close quote. Mm. So if if you could give maybe a simple process, I, and I know it's not always simple, but if there's something that you could suggest to help someone uh, face who they are in a way that helps them refrain from regressing into that self-judgment and self-hatred. Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, you know, what it really is, 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 is learning compassion. And compassion is something we learn. I think in religious thought, that's very much the purpose of our time here on earth is to learn compassion, mm-hmm. not as like something you do for weak people, but just a fundamental part of living life well and wisely because we're all vulnerable and flawed. And Christ is emblematic of a kind of profound compassion for our flawed human state, right? So becoming more like Christ is to become more capable of genuine compassion for being a human being, right? We're, we're, the perfectionism masks as righteousness. It masks as goodness. It's not. And I don't mean, I'm not talking about striving for excellence or striving to be good at things. I think those are, that's all part of fulfilling the measure of our creation. That's all part of our development. I'm talking about a refusal to let yourself be human and to try to at least pretend you're above it. That's evil. I mean, that's Satan's path. It's like pretend goodness and you'll berate yourself and mask who you are. And it interferes with the ability to be intimate in relationships. It interferes with the ability to be at peace with yourself. To have compassion to yourself is to say, I am disappointed in myself. I wish it could have been another way. I wish I could have, I wish I could be stronger than what I see is here. But I will tolerate the fact of my of the way it hits my ego and how much it hurts to face what's there and do better. Mm-hmm. Right? Not out of hatred, but out of a desire to move out of suffering and move into something that you respect more. You know, when we go into self-hatred, there is a kind of narcissism in it. And I don't mean to like, you know, pile on to people that go into self-hatred, but there's, there, it's that perfectionism, like, 
either I refuse, there's some people out there, I refuse to acknowledge I ever do anything wrong. Like many people that are in kind of high status professions have that liability that they need so much to be right that they can't look at where they got something wrong. Another version of a kind of self-absorption is any evidence of my humanity means I completely suck. Like I'm worthless, I'm nothing, rather than like, really? Is there any of us who's getting out of this with unscathed? No, I mean, there's, there is no other way except to be flawed. That's what development requires. You, you have to make room for it. I think a measure of our spiritual capacity is, can we offer ourselves compassion in the face of our difficulty, in the face of our anxiety, in the face of our suffering, in the face of our limitations? Because it's that compassion that's more likely to move us forward than our self-hatred. A lot of us think if I don't berate myself and beat myself up, I'll never do better tomorrow. We're afraid we'll just be like, yeah, good enough. But it's just not true. The best way to motivate is to say, you know, you did it. You did it. Like, you know, I was talking to my daughter the other day. She's a, she's a violinist and she was sort of berating herself for not matching her pretty lofty goals for practice time that I could never do. I mean, let's be clear. I would, I would be so hard to be in a practice room that long. But instead, like, you know, you did it for this long. That's remarkable, right? And you can maybe learn, you know, why you stepped away for the other part. You can learn from it. But it's way more motivating for us to talk to ourselves about what we did right and what we did get right and learn from what we didn't and, and begin again. Try again. That is what every day is. And we in, we get incremental changes. They may be slower than we want. They may be less than we want. But if we stay the course and tolerate all the evidence of imperfection that will show itself to us, we will be more likely to get better little by little. And become the person that we actually want to be. That's right. Exactly. It's a kind of self-investment to tolerate the evidence of your failings and imperfection. It's say, okay, I'm worth being aware of that and having the humiliation that's inherent to it, you know, compared to some fantasy of who I want to see myself as being, but I am worth that awareness and I will move forward. Okay. But let me be the devil's advocate. Sure. <laughs> sure. I think it's so hard, right? Cause this is what I hear. It's like, yeah, but how do I support my spouse why they get better? I mean, they're literally, I mean, it, sexual sin is next to murder, right? This is like really bad. The way he sins is way worse than the way I sin. So how do I? Yeah. Okay, well. How do you I, reconcile that? Because I mean, yeah, that's kind of how sure. I feel like women get, right? We're like, the way we sin is not as bad as the way you sin. So I just don't think that's. I just me. don't think that's true. Now, what I would say is if you are... I mean, the thing that really is next to murder is sexual abuse. Mm. That I will give you. I because agree. if you if you harm somebody through their sexuality, it's a profound harm. Mm -hmm. So if you know, so that is true. But and you can make arguments for how porn supports an industry that's harmful. And I think there's that's true too. But it's, it's a moral high ground that I would say I'm uncomfortable with because the bigger question is how much do I exploit or take advantage of people, my spouse included, my husband or my wife. Um, 
you don't, I think sexual invalidation can hurt a lot because it feels so personal. Am I not enough for you? Yeah. What's that image got that I don't have? You know, why don't you choose me? And we can take it very, very personally and try to put ourselves back together by shaming our spouse and grabbing moral high ground and looking down our nose at them. It's a way of handling our own disappointments. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to say that you need to like it or that you need to even choose this person. You may choose not to. But I think grabbing moral high ground and condescending is a is a kind of an effort to put our fractured sense of self back together rather than better understanding your spouse and what is it that's there is it as is it as sinful and terrible as i think maybe it is right but i need to just start to look at it and understand the world from his point of view is this about me or not Right? Is this about him being the most loathsome person on the planet? Or is there another way to understand what's going on? I mean, a lot of good people grew up in households where shame was so, ta- I'm sorry, where sex was so taboo and fascinating yet scary. And then the internet comes along and they're looking to get away from their adolescent anxieties, anxieties that are rampant in their households. And this becomes a very easy way to go and try and get some comfort in a world that feels uncertain, somewhat heartless, perhaps. And then they have all this sense of like, I am right next to murder. And so then they have this download of, I am just a horrible human being. And it's wrong. It's the wrong picture. It doesn't make them horrible. It makes them human, an adolescent whose sexuality is emerging, who has this whole world that is designed to compel. And that deserves some compassion. It doesn't mean it's a good choice or that it's a good long-term strategy. No, it, 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 it's actually infected and interfered with a process of their own development that is not good for them. But being able to take a look at that and think about why was I going there? What was I trying to solve? What's a better way to solve it? That's going to be way more helpful than, oh yeah, you're right next to the murderers and I'm over here bring in the Relief Society a casserole. And (laughs) I mean, I just think it's false and unfair to reduce each other in in such a simple-minded way. So sorry, Darcy, you're wrong. (laughs) 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 I love it. So I want to go back to one thing you said earlier. You talked about how, you know, the women sometimes are not willing to see maybe the role that they did play in that dynamic. Yes. Yes. And so like one of the examples that I learned later on was that, you know, he, while he was climbing the corporate ladder, right. Mm. In California, making all of my mm. dreams come true. Mm. If he were to come home from work and tell me like, you know, he had a bad day or maybe mm-hmm. he didn't go quite right at yep. work. His boss had yep. to talk with him. Like I would freak out. Like, yep. It felt so disruptive to hear him say like, Oh my, I'm a vulnerable person. Was, I, it was yeah. shattering my security. Like, are you going to get fired? Like, I was super intense about it. So what did he do? I Hunter. never told you he anything. He never told me anything. <laughs> right. And then he dealt with his anxieties and his, by right. turning to porn. So I guess my question yep. is, what other ways do you see that women play a role in this dynamic? Well, they I'm really collude. Glad and, you asked that question. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> I know this. I mean, this is like a really hard thing, right? It is because I don't want to. Let me just of it. absolutely. So let me just start with the disclaimers that are true. I'm not. Yeah. You know, 
you're never going to control your your spouse is always ultimately responsible for their choices. Yeah. You were always responsible for your own choices. It's just full stop. Ultimately it nobody else can take responsibility for them. So even if you come by your bad choices honestly, there's still you're the one who is ultimately responsible for them and lives within the consequences of them. So um so that's clear and it's never true that one spouse causes another spouse to look at porn or be unfaithful or anything else. However, we are a part of a meaning context, and we may be doing our own version of the bad marriage that we don't like when we see it in our spouse. So there's a lot of people that are complicit, just as you're talking about, Darcy, in a non-intimate marriage. I don't want to know you. I want to know the you that makes me feel safe. Mm-hmm. I want to know the you that makes me feel secure. I say I want a vulnerable man, but only when it's about, darling, you're so amazing and you mean so much to me. I don't even know how to say it, okay? Yeah. <laughs> That's not the version of vulnerability that we, that we want, not <laughs> the, I don't know if I'm good enough at this job. I really don't know. I don't think, I, don't, I sometimes wonder if our financial reality is going to crumble. I mean, what woman wants to hear that? And None so, of them. None of them. <laughs> especially if she's dependent on that source. Right. And so, and so there is a, you know, we like the vulnerability that reinforces us, but not the vulnerability that shows us that we're truly married to a human being who is uncertain. We really demand a lot from our kind of notions of masculinity mm-hmm. that I think can really work against men's intimacy, capacity for intimacy. Um, I think around sexuality, I think a lot of times we want sexuality to be a reinforcement of ourselves, not a way to know our spouse. We want it on the terms that make us comfortable, but nothing else. We don't necessarily want to really create a sexual partnership. We want sexual reinforcement. We want sex that, or non-sex that makes us feel safe. And so we can often pressure the marriage into take care of me not I want to know you and understand you. And so couples can collude in hiding, and porn is often one very uh, clear way of hiding in marriage. For women, it's mostly oftentimes I find eating or Amazon shopping, right? Like how many packages (laughs) come to your front door every week, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's COVID. That's the reason. Yeah. <laughs> I can't go out and shop, so I have to order it online. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Well, and I think I think hiding is a really good way of, of talking about it because and it's not just men, it's it's women too who view pornography. Um, mm-hmm. in fact, we just I just did an interview with one of my clients who is a woman, and mm-hmm. she she was hiding from her own anxiety and from her and she's a single woman. So it's not mm-hmm. hi, it's not always hiding from another person. In fact, I would say more than anything, it's almost always hiding from me. Absolutely. Right. It's very helpful, like what my son went through, because it it just allowed me to see this anxiety, challenge with self-regulation, and it's an impairment with oneself. Now, it does affect other people. Sure. And, you know, it impacts you and how you're in relationship to other people. But yes, it's a difficulty with handling one's own humanity, dealing with one's uncertainty. Intimacy we think about it as something that our spouse grants us. Like, if you'll promise me that you'll accept me, I'll talk to you about my work anxieties. But (laughs) we can't, that's not, you know, we need to be more able to 
be at peace enough with ourselves and our humanity to tolerate being knowable. Now, a lot of people say, well, I didn't tell my wife because I just knew she couldn't handle it. It might be true, but it sounds like you couldn't handle it either. You couldn't handle showing who you were. So you convinced yourself this was making her safer, but really it was making you safer from the scrutiny you didn't want to have. And, you know, women do this too, obviously. We all do it. So it's dishonesty is a way of trying to, to get away from knowing ourselves and get away from our development. The truth always pressures you into development. Okay, so along, you just were talking about dishonesty. So let's say we're working on honesty now, now that we know our spouse is using mm -hmm. pornography, looking at mm -hmm. it. Um, what level of honesty do you feel like is needed? So like, you know, if you're meeting with your spouse once a week to talk about your week, I mean, do you feel like honesty would be, okay, I was at Costco and I saw these three ladies walk by and I thought they were really sexy. Like at what level of honesty do you think it's being honest? This like, is a true story. Yeah. Like how mm -hmm. much do you, <laughs> how much do you feel like needs to be shared for actual well, honesty? You know what I'm well, saying? Well, what I, I think that you have to think about what is the goal? Is the goal of feeling in control of my spouse is it proving to my spouse I'm honest? Or is it about, you know, I I think it's valuable for me to be more knowable to my spouse in this way. It's valuable for our marriage. Mm -hmm. It's valuable information. Um, so I guess the, the picture I would want to be getting away from is any idea of the wife regulating the husband or it's a confessional Mm -hmm. You know, that's... That's kind of what it feels like, right? It's yes. Like <laughs> it's the wrong picture. It can often be like, you know, you're my accountability buddy, but really it's yeah. about, all right, cough it up, you know, are you being good or not? That kind of thing as opposed to... Can I feel good about myself this week or do I need to feel like I'm not good enough this week? Depending on how you... Yeah, exactly. How you answer. Exactly. And I think a more intimate model is, you know, like, well, I... I do expect you to be straight with me. That would be the wife saying that, right? I do ask you to not deceive me around information that would be important for me to know. Mm -hmm. I do want to be married to a man who's handling his impulses and working with his own anxieties in productive ways. I have my own work cut out for me on that front, yeah. but it matters to me that you're doing it. I'm not going to make you or police you into choosing me. Um, but if you're deceiving me, that's a big deal because you're interfering with my ability to know you and to make good choices for myself. So just, I'll let you husband decide what needs to be said, if anything. But again, I do care very much about you not keeping me from information that would be important for me to know for my own choices. I just think for me personally, like if Zach came home every day and reported any, any chick that he saw that he thought was attractive, yeah, <laughs> I don't really need to know that. Like, yeah, that, that exactly. Would be super annoying to me. I'd be like, why are you telling me this? Like, yeah, great. Right. Glad you found them attractive. Right. right. And, and just exactly. Is it, I would never, if I saw someone attractive or I thought, I mean, I would never think, oh, I must go tell my husband that I just, 
it's it's if I were to start making choices and doing things that he would want to know, but I'm keeping from him, that's clearly a violation. Do you see what I'm saying? Like if, if yeah. I were to start doing something that I'm purposefully keeping him from information he wants. I remember a client saying to his wife who was masking information, found out she had a bank account he didn't know about. And he's like, I want to know what's going on in that bank account. And she didn't want to show him, didn't want to show him. He's like, I want to know. And he's like, she says, why do you want to know? He's like, because you don't want to show me. That's why. Yeah. Right. That is, and she, he was right. That yeah. is, it's telling if you're trying to mask information because it means you're trying to keep yourself from, you, you want to have me trust you and have your own liberty rather than making, letting me decide if I trust you by being honest. And a lot of people are trying to steal their spouse's choice, choices. Wow. Well, I I really appreciate you coming on. I know Darcy does. Uh, I'll be honest; we were really excited when uh, great <laughs> <laughs> to, to be able to do this with you because we love your work. Um, we would love if we could offer a, a scholarship uh, or a pair of scholarships oh. to your um, great either your Art of Desire or uh, or to the podcast. Um, yeah. whatever that would be, we would love to do that because I think that the work that you do is, is fantastic and we love it. Great. We would, that would be wonderful. And what we do, the Room for Two podcast, people have been, you know, offering scholarships to people. It's, you know, $97 a year, but if we don't want people to not be able to get access if cost is an issue and then we always match it. So if you do decide you want to do that, that's a great way to do it. Um, and so yeah, that's that would yeah. be wonderful. So it, I'll just reach out to I think it's Kristen, Christy, uh huh, Christy, yes, uh, and we'll set that up. And I think that uh, we'll probably try and do uh, one of the art of desire, one of the art of loving, and maybe great, the, uh, wonderful. Yes, thank you so much. They're all fantastic. So thank you so much. Thank yes. you for doing this. Thank you so much for uh, being on. We really do appreciate all the work that you do. We love picking your brain. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. All right, you guys have a great week. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Self Mastery Podcast. Every day, Darcy and I work with amazing men and women to remove pornography from their lives and relationships. If you're ready to take the next step in your journey, let us help you. Sign up for a consult at zackspafford.com slash workwithme, and you can set up some time for you or your spouse to meet with me or with Darcy, and we can help you get started on your self-mastery journey. Thanks for listening to Thrive Beyond Pornography. If you're seeking guidance and support to overcome pornography for good and begin creating a thriving life beyond it, check out my free webinar, How to Overcome Pornography with Skills That Actually Work. You'll learn practical, proven skills guided by an expert coach who has personally overcome pornography. Whether you're getting started for just yourself or along with your spouse, Darcy and I can teach you the tools that will help you put your life on the right path for you. Be sure to check out the show notes for a direct link and... If you could take a moment to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, it would mean the world to us. Your reviews play a significant role in helping others discover the show so they can join us on this transformative journey. Thank you for being part of the Thrive Beyond Pornography community. Until our next episode, stay strong, stay focused, and keep thriving.